Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Believe me, I didn't know that I was going to turn into a rock climber. And I don't really know how to explain that. Do you remember your first climb? Vividly. What was it? (laughs) Called Easy O, Easy Overhang. A very simple grade. And to me... On, on the last pitch, um, where I was standing on a belay ledge that was probably about that big, you know, like your your toes were hanging over the edge of it into space, and as um, the fellow that I was climbing with at the time, it was a beginner like me, and he was terrified. I was saying, you know, oh my God, this is incredible. It was the exposure that got him and and thrilled me. This is Laura Waterman. Uh, My name is Laura Waterman. And that's it. I live in East Corinth, Vermont. For most of you, that name probably doesn't mean anything. But for some, the Waterman name is like mountain royalty. Laura was a pioneering rock and ice climber. She was one of the first women and one of the first people ever to ascend one of the Northeast's most storied ice climbing routes, the Black Dyke, 
which Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard called a black, filthy, horrendous icicle. Uh, well, it probably it was, I'm sure, the hardest ice climb in the Northeast at that time. We had first-generation ice axes and ice hammers that um, were very advanced for that time, but our antiques today. It's funny about what can happen to you. You know, you're just staring out in front of you, and time is either going very slowly or speeding up. You kind of lose track of time almost. You know, it's, it's a great, it's an awesome, frightening, beautiful place to be. But more than all that, Laura and her late husband Guy helped to create the very way that people think about the outdoors today. And if you've ever fantasized about quitting your job, changing your whole life, and just living in nature, they're the sort of people that did exactly that. And in so doing, their life became a kind of dream, an ideal seized upon by the burgeoning back-to-the-land movement. But all of that is only part of the story. In the last two decades, after the death of her husband, Laura has reinvented herself. And in my later years, so to speak, I'm 80 now. And that actually just happened a few months ago. Oh, your birthday. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 pretty powerful place to be. And um, so, I mean, I think as humans, we're, we're capable of tremendous change really throughout our lives. I mean, that's uh, what life is all about. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, the many lives of an outdoor icon, Laura Waterman. The moments that shaped her and the philosophy she helped create. A philosophy that still influences how people experience the wilderness. Laura lives in a small house on a river in a tiny town on the Vermont-New Hampshire border. The entire house is made from wood. The framing, the finish work, the furniture. It um, absorbs moisture in the summer, and it gets rid of it in the winter. And you can every now and then hear, you know, a crack. (laughs) I've gotten quite used to it. Every post has got these carvings in them. Yeah. And so I'm curious, that was the first thing I wanted to ask about, is is there a story behind the carvings? Yeah. An old friend of Laura's we um, went to grade school together. Has been coming once a week for many years to carve and paint vines and birds and leaves and quotations all over the walls. So, so, so some of these, so for instance, it says, "Accuse not nature; she hath done her part. Do thou but thine." Uh, Milton, Paradise Lost, favorite book of guys. Yeah. Guy, again, was her late husband. This story is about Laura, but it's not possible to disentangle Laura Waterman from Guy Waterman. Guy and Laura designed this house together, and their shared life is literally written all over its walls. For nearly 20 years since his death, Laura wakes up every day 
to see reminders of that life, a life they built very intentionally. I was born in, in Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> uh, my dad taught at the Lawrenceville School, prep school down there. And I lived on a dead-end street at that time. My, our backyard stretched into woods, and we were, as kids, outdoors all the time. And, and your dad was an Emily Dickinson scholar, isn't That's that right? correct. He was chairman of the English department. <clears throat> our house was filled with books. Laura graduated from college, got a good job editing manuscripts at one of New York City's best publishing houses, and for a number of years lived a New York City life. Um, I spent many happy years not doing anything very much other than going out to Fire Island or walking through Central Park. But then, for some reason, she started to feel the old itch to go outside. She had hiked the White Mountains as a summer camp counselor when she was a teenager and decided to pick it up again, joining weekend outings with the Appalachian Mountain Club. It was on one of those trips that she met Guy, and suddenly her desk job wasn't quite so thrilling anymore. I couldn't concentrate on my work, and in fact, um, was let go and began to collect unemployment. This was Laura's first reinvention. She abandoned the desk job and got hired at a gear shop. Guy was older. He was separated from his first wife, with whom he had had three children. He had worked as a speechwriter for Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford, but had flamed out of Washington and was nestled in a comfortable corporate job with General Electric. Most everything I know about Guy comes from Laura's book. But if I may offer up my read of the situation, it sounds to me like he was struggling to live up to some sort of idealized masculine perfection. He was objectively smart and talented, yet had a failed marriage and had been forced out of his big-time political career. I think he was haunted by his inability to live up to what he quote-unquote should have achieved as a man and struggled to stave off depression as a result. And like so many before him and after him, he turned to the mountains for solace, where he became somewhat of a figure in the outdoors community. He had a lot of magnetism, and it, I think it showed up, you know, in his eyes and his body actions. He was very quick. He was very articulate. He was not someone who made small talk, but yet you wanted to have a conversation with him. He was never boring. I don't think he really was uh, aware of the, of the power that he had over people. I mean, he could be very social, but um, he could also, he also required a lot of alone time. A very volatile temperament. It's hard not to acknowledge that Laura was somewhat in Guy's shadow throughout their marriage. In talking to their mutual friends and reading what has been written about them, his charisma is kind of legendary. But his darker side, that, it seems, mainly Laura got to see. Laura fell for Guy very quickly. Guy fell for Laura not too long afterward. 
And before terribly long, the two had hatched a plan to leave their city lives behind. They would buy a small piece of land in Vermont, plant a garden, build a 500-square-foot cabin, and start homesteading. I had an incredible learning curve of rock climbing, winter mountaineering, ice climbing, um, preparing to homestead, wrapping up life in New York, (laughs) Um, falling in love with someone really for the first time. Um, I wrote in my memoir, and it's still true that if I had not met Guy Waterman, I wouldn't have married anyone. The two were married at a grand hotel in the Shawgunks, the rock-climbing destination outside of New York City where they had first met. And shortly after, they set off for the woods of Vermont. They named their homestead Barra, after the island in Scotland that Guy's ancestors had lived on. It was very important to us to climb as much as possible. And a big part of our reason for, for adapting a, home, a homesteading life was to be able to base ourselves near the mountains, to be able to get to the mountains as often as we wanted to. For Guy, that was extremely important, as he needed the mountains more than most people do, more than I did. Laura and Guy's life at Barra has been a source of fascination for many of us who still live connected to the grid. They read books, by candles, hauled water in buckets, tended a huge garden, and split unimaginable quantities of firewood by hand. They weren't cut off from the rest of the world. They served on nonprofit boards and hosted an endless parade of guests. But they lived on about $3,000 a year from their savings and income from writing projects. One of the quotes that really struck me is Guy would say that what we're doing at Barra isn't a model for anybody. Mm-hmm. What do you think he meant by that? And do you agree with it? I think he meant that it, it, we people didn't need to take our life as a blueprint. It it was. I think he was aware that um, we were probably too far back in the 19th century. What does that mean? You just don't think that the rest of society is ready to to follow you there? Uh, yeah, and you know there would be no reason really why they needed to. <laughs> I mean, it was really a personal choice that fit in with, you know, our temperaments. And uh, we actually enjoyed going down to get the water on a daily basis, um, carrying it back to the house. I mean, the things that looked very labor-intensive to most people, um, we took a lot of pleasure out of them. Just as an example, they kept a lot of records. They kept track of temperatures in three different places at three different times of day. They tracked the record minimum and maximum temperatures for every calendar day of the year. They kept an index card with every bird they saw or heard every day. Their favorite time of year was late winter into spring, when the maple sap started to run and they boiled it to make syrup. We carried three by five cards with each tree's name written on it and um, and carrying measuring sticks that are marked for quartz. Um, and so we would measure the sap 
and write that down on the measure on the card and then factor it into our records that we had on a, a board on the wall of the sugar shed yeah. and tally, tally it up every day. They tallied the records by day, by month, by year, and turned it into a contest. They declared a tree of the year, a rookie tree of the year, a tree of the decade, a tree of the century. That one, by the way, was called Mad Dog. My favorite story of this record keeping is from Laura's book. They used to keep count of every blueberry they picked from their bushes and followed the yield of each bush through its lifetime. Once, two friends went picking blueberries with Guy, and while they began in concentrated silence to keep track of their harvest, eventually they broke into conversation. Supposedly, the friend admitted, Oh, Guy, I have to confess I've lost count. Don't worry, Guy said. I've been counting for you. Some people might see it as as sort of, uh, uh, you know... Obsessive. Obsessive, right? But, but, that but Laura says it, it, this routine, this kind routine of attention, of, uh, changes you. It made us take note of what was actually going on. And I think if you're, if you're keeping records on the birds, say, you're going to um, have your ears sharp tuned in, you're working in the garden, you're working in the woods, and and one part of you is listening for the birds. So it's it's um, connecting with nature in, in a, a way that we don't really have a mechanism for doing. I will say, as someone who looks at his phone too much and really would like to be more aware of things outside, I found this all really appealing. I want what she's describing. So after reading her book, I'm going to start keeping my own record. I got myself a rain gauge. Why a rain gauge? Well, the idea of checking something absolutely every day, along with a toddler and a couple of jobs and a bunch of other hobbies, felt overwhelming. But occasionally heading out into the yard, looking around listening to the birds, looking at the clouds, and feeling the wind, and then writing down how much it rained? I can handle that. Guy and Laura lived this way at Barra for nearly 30 years. A friend of Laura and Guy's told me they were not actually famous. Not for the public at large, anyway. This friend told me they were more like the Velvet Underground. Famous among famous bands, but, you know, still underground. In the case of the Watermans, that came from their writing. When I um, began writing with Guy and began learning about how to be a writer, and it was mainly from Guy. I mean, in a sense, the writing that we did together, I, I would say I was more his apprentice. From the earliest days of homesteading, freelance writing was their sole source of income. They found their voice writing a monthly column for a now-defunct magazine called New England Outdoors. We could write the column in a morning. Guy would say, you pick what you want to write about, and I'll do the rest. I mean, he was a professional writer. So, you know, I would scribble away, and he would scribble away, and then we would read what we had written to each other, and... 
He would sort of link it together. This is where they began to set down the ideas that would later become their books, Backwoods Ethics and Wilderness Ethics. If Laura and Guy were the velvet underground of mountain stewardship, these books were like the banana album. They started writing in the mid-70s and continued for two decades. So when a national collaboration formed in the 90s to develop what would eventually come to be called Leave No Trace, the style of low-impact recreation that a lot of outdoors folks advocate, Backwoods Ethics was one of the foundational texts that they used to come up with the guidelines. Laura and Guy thought that everybody deserved to experience the wilderness like they did. But they also knew that if everybody did get out into the wilderness, they could accidentally ruin it, trample it, smother it. The writing wrestles with this central tension. How do you let a lot of people get up into the mountains and get excited about the outdoors and not destroy the very thing you so treasure? In an oft-cited passage of wilderness ethics, they wrote, Without some management, wildness cannot survive the number of people who seek to enjoy it. But with too much management, or the wrong kind, we can destroy the spiritual component of wildness in our zeal to preserve its physical side. You can find an example of what this means, practically, in the work they did up on Franconia Ridge. The Franconia Ridge really needed help. That became really the central focus of our, our trips to the mountains. The struggle to find balance on the most popular trail in the Northeast after a break. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Everything about Franconia Ridge destines it to be incredibly popular. It's right off of I-93, New Hampshire's major interstate, and at about two hours north of Boston and three hours south of Montreal, it's a reasonably short drive from some major population centers. It's a gorgeous chunk of White Mountain Ridgeline that ascends steeply from the road, so you're up out of the trees after just a few miles. And the classic hike is around an eight-mile loop, which is a relatively approachable day hike, and it includes a mile and a half of simply spectacular ridge walking. And with the post-war hiking boom in full swing, the crowds had already found Franconia Ridge. And if you looked at early pictures of it, you would see that, you know, there it's all scattered footpaths and worn, worn through the tundra. The weather in the White Mountains is terrible. For many years, it held the world's record for the fastest recorded wind speed. The tree line is at low elevation, and above tree line, it's literally tundra. Like, the plants you find up there are remnants of what everything looked like when the glaciers retreated after the Ice Age. There's a plant, the robin's sinkfoil, that is found in only two patches on the entire planet. One of those two patches is on Mount Washington, the other is on Franconia Ridge. And when hundreds of people step on plants like that, they die and take a long time to grow back. 
In response, in the 70s, the Appalachian Mountain Club's trail crew put up scree walls, piles of rocks on either side of the trail to keep hikers from trampling the rare alpine flora. And the scree walls themselves, we really took offense to them because we felt that it was making people walk between two walls very much a feel of a sidewalk. I mean, the wildness has been impacted. Laura and Guy lowered the scree walls and tried to redirect the trail so that people would stay on it a little more naturally, letting the trail flow to viewpoints and then back away from the edge. They covered side paths with brush to make them hard to walk on and ensure that people would keep to the main trail. But Laura says the most effective thing was just talking to people. We could, you know, go into something about the plants and how they've been here since the Ice Age. And um, it's uh, a rare tundra habitat. And um, they don't like being stepped on. And usually a person who was we were talking to was stepping on them and they sort of jump off the plants and onto the trail. And um, it was... Uh, you know, a pretty easy way to spread the stewardship message. Laura's involvement with Franconia Ridge, though, has continued well past the point where she is no longer physically doing any of the trail work up there. It continues today. She helped to launch something called the Waterman Fund. Along with an essay contest and awards for people who work in stewardship, they also fund grants. And just a couple of years ago, one of those grants went to a trail worker who went up to assess the state of the trail that Laura and Guy had maintained, because things up there were changing. But then um, we got up to closer to the present day, and um, the Frank County Ridge somehow made it into, you know, like 100 best climbs in the world, right? So that's drawing a lot more people. On a beautiful summer weekend day, there have been counts that have found more than 700 people walking the ridge. The path between the scree walls is too narrow to pass in many places, so the trail just keeps getting wider. There's the main scree walled path, and then on either side of that are trails worn into the tundra. So that's what's happening up there, and in a way it's out of control. For instance, as more hikers have come to climb the Franconia Ridge, the trailhead parking lots fill up pretty quickly. So for years, people just parked literally on the side of the interstate. Sometimes the cars were lined up on both sides of the road for upwards of a mile. There's a task force that's working on solutions, which so far have included actually enforcing parking bans on the side of the interstate and instituting a hiker shuttle from the parking lot of a nearby ski area. But the foot traffic on the ridge is still way beyond what it ever has been, and all of those feet tromping through the rare plants. So what would you do? Laura thinks the Franconia Ridge itself might need an update for the 21st century. We need to build a trail that can accommodate a heavier amount of foot traffic than we've ever seen before. And that is going to be controversial because to widen the trail, you're going to be destroying plants. But on the other hand, there might not be a lot of choice. I had assumed, given how Laura sees these crowds, that the solutions might include some sort of restriction on how many people can hike. 
like having to get a permit to hike the ridge, which some popular hikes do. But she surprised me. I mean, are there any good answers? I don't know. <laughs> but, I, but in general, I feel a permit system really is the last resort. And that education and um, some kind of cultural change is needed. I mean, that will be the, it's the hardest. But um, we don't want to go to a permit system. It's been talked about for years. And it would be really a shame to do that. I mean, for me personally, um, it's really telling you when you can go to the mountain and when you can't. And it interferes with that wild spirit, which is why you're going to the mountains in the first place. There's something that we have to acknowledge before we go any further. There's a chance that if you've heard about the Watermans, it's not because of their pioneering work as wilderness philosophers, but because of how Guy died. About 20 years ago, when his depression finally got the best of him, Guy walked up onto Franconia Ridge on a brutally cold winter day and succumbed to exposure, leaving many devastated friends and admirers in his wake. I just want to editorialize a bit here, because I find some of the journalism devoted to Guy Waterman's death downright disturbing. There seems to be some sort of lionization of what he did, as if it was a brave way to not fall prey to the unmanly, undignified dependence of old age. For example, a very long outside magazine piece about this incident is titled A Natural Death. I had an uncle who died in a similar fashion, and find suggestions that this is some sort of noble choice personally offensive. It's not a natural death. It's the result of deep depression. If there's anyone listening right now who doesn't believe me, pick up Laura's memoir, Losing the Garden. Reading her book makes it clear that Guy was a person who struggled with untreated mental illness for his entire life. If you're struggling with thoughts like these yourself, get help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Following Guy's death, Laura moved away from their homestead on the mountainside to the village, into the little house that the two had designed together, just a half mile from the library. That's where she goes to answer emails from the rest of us, the overconnected hordes eager to hear from someone who has lived another way. In the 20 years that she's been in the village, Laura has reinvented herself again. While she may have seen her writing partnership with Guy as her apprenticeship, now that she's been able to write on her own, she's been able to find her own voice, take her own space. And as she's had time to reflect, it was her childhood and listening to her father that she thinks has most influenced her. Um, his colleagues would come and they would get talking about what they were working on. And, and they were so energized by it. It was so much fun for them. I think that colored, actually, my whole life. And when Guy and I began writing books together, I was carrying that, that joyousness, basically, uh, that I could feel that my father had felt. She's published her own books under her own byline, the memoir, which we've mentioned, but the latest is historical fiction, a retelling of a doomed Arctic voyage called Starvation Shore. She's never been to the Arctic, but says being above treeline in winter in New England taught her all she needed to know about that climate. Now, 
While on the homestead, it was Guy who woke up before dawn, while Laura slept in until 7. Now, Laura is up at 4.30 each day, just like her father used to do, and just like Guy did. She's at her typewriter by 6. We all have different habits that, um, that we're fond of. And, uh, yeah, I just really like the routine of getting up when basically everybody else is asleep and uh, watching the day move in. It's certainly important for me to feel like I've accomplished something um, by the time uh, the end of the morning comes. And basically the end of the morning for me is about 11.30 when I walk up to the post office to get my mail. And it's when I moved here after his death, and that's 20 years ago now, or will be very soon. Um, that's when I began to, in a sense, move into my own space or head as a writer. But it's taken some years for that to happen. Her past life isn't forgotten. Their homestead, Bara, is still up there. It's only a few miles from where she lives. But Laura says she never goes there anymore. One really, actually, major drawback is that um, since I don't have the reason to go outside um, to keep records, I'm not going out as much as I had been. So I'm not out as much, and I'm not as tuned into nature the way I was. And I regard it as a great loss. But um, I'm just in a different phase of my life. So while I miss it, um, I'm, I'm leaving it at that. Yeah. It's like you, we can't do everything. Not all at once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Filthy, Horrendous, Ice-Climbing Campfire Tales. Special thanks today to Doug the Old Gray Mayor. Yes, that Doug Mayor. Rebecca Oreskes and Kelly McBride. Now, if you are invested in the outcome of the voting from our last episode of which small thing with a big effect was best, we're going to keep the voting open a while longer. You can check that out on our website, outsideinradio.org. And hey, here's the thing that we haven't asked about in a while. How about reviewing the podcast? We're still a relatively small show, and climbing the various rating charts will help us be sustainable in the long run. So open up your podcasting app of choice and let them know what you think of us. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was made by Brigmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner 
between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.